Hello, and welcome to What is Innovation? The podcast that explores the reality of a word that is in danger of losing its meaning altogether. This podcast is produced by Outlast Consulting, LLC, a boutique consultancy that helps companies use innovation principles to solve their toughest business problems. I'm your host, Jared Simmons, and I'm so excited to have Whitney Parnell. Whitney Parnell is a Black millennial activist, singer, and the founder and CEO of Service Never Sleeps, a nonprofit that empowers individuals and communities to catalyze social justice through service and allyship. Her movement work involves racial justice efforts and equipping effective allies through truth-telling, bridge-building, empathy, and action. She grew up between Latin America and West Africa as a foreign service child. At Washington University in St. Louis, Whitney double majored in English and Spanish and minored in communications and journalism, during which she also embraced her calling as an activist. Whitney's passion for service and social justice brought her to Washington, D.C. after college to serve with City Year and then work in homeless services before founding Service Never Sleeps in 2015. Whitney is also a musician and released a social justice album called What Will You Do? with the goal of using empathy through song to ignite action. Whitney. I am so excited about this conversation. It's been years in the making. I remember the day we met and it's been fun staying in contact with you and watching the amazing things you've been doing. And I can't wait for everyone else to get a chance to hear from you. So thank you so much for making time to join us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Always grateful that people who know me and know what I talk about <laughs> want to make space to amplify that. So thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Of course. It's important. It's important. So why don't we just dive right in? What in your mind is innovation? Innovation. There is such a broad scope. And I'm holding two particular buckets right now. Mm -hmm. On the one end, I say think innovation is things like envisioning into action. Mm -hmm. It's taking creativity and like envisioning what could be. Sure. And I think the big thing is actual implementation because a lot of times where humanity can get limited is having all these ideas, but not actually making it happen. Sure. So for me, innovation is like an action thing putting envisioning to action. Mm -hmm. The other piece that I'll say, particularly given that I am an activist, my, my life is racial justice work, is that by default, innovation means that that really means challenging and dismantling white supremacy mm. and trying a different way, right? Because mm -hmm. you just, you, you think a lot of what has been curated as the default way, then literally by default, trying to do something different means disrupting that. So I can't say that I can't have a conversation about innovation and doing something different and envisioning and putting that to action without hence saying that that means dismantling white supremacy. And there it is. Here we go. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> we just got to get right to it, right? That's right. That's right. Look, no easing into it. It's right there in the definition. I love it. Mm -hmm. I love the sort of foundational definition that you gave around creativity and, you know, envisioning how to bring that into action, take that into action. And in the context of the environment in which we live and the society in which we live and the historical context in which we live, I love the frame that you put on that in terms of dismantling. That's a great term. And I want to help people understand, and I want to make sure I understand mm -hmm. what the term white supremacy means especially in the context of a societal view of innovation. Sure. 
Yeah. Here we go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I'm glad you asked that question. Thank you for making that space because a lot of people, when they think white supremacy, their mind goes to white nationalists, Mm. KKK, Charlottesville, right? Right. And what I often say is I was in Charlottesville. Oh my goodness. I was a counter protester on August 12, 2017, because people need to show up to show that that will not be stood for, right? Sure. I'm unapologetic about the fact that I was there, though still will be traumatized for the rest of my life mm. from it. So like, I know what white supremacists involves. Right, right. Right? Right. And I always try to distinguish white supremacists are certainly trying to uphold white supremacy with intention. Mm -hmm. But I get people to understand that white supremacy is actually the air that we're breathing, the water that we're swimming in. I say that it's the institutionalization of white dominance and power. Mm. And so it really means understanding that we're operating in a society where we have to acknowledge the history of dominance and the creation of race that literally impacts everything and its creation to uphold white supremacy. But then what people often don't think about with like what I call the formula of white supremacy, it's dominance plus culture. Mm. And this whole creation, if you literally study history of whiteness, right? And hence the default of what is deemed as right. I'm not getting the actual quote right, but rest her soul, Toni Morrison said something to the effect of in this country, American means white. Everyone else has to hyphenate. Mm. And that's, I think that's such powerful language to think about power deems what the default is, right? And what should be. Mm. And we can't deny that history of like violence and power involved in that. Right, right. And so once we understand white supremacy as the institutionalization of white dominance and power and something that we're operating in, sure, that's why by default innovation means working against that and knowing that there's a better way. And I'll leave with, I'm glad that you lifted up the term dismantle because that scares people too. They're just like, oh gosh, (laughs) look, I'm a pacifist. I'm I'm nonviolent at that. But I would hope that we want to dismantle things that are not good, things that are bad. And so I also always invite people to even be innovative in terms of their language and think about even how society has impacted what we deem as good language and bad. Mm. I want to dismantle oppression, don't you? Like, I hope a lot of people do. <laughs> and so how do we also like just embrace where dismantling is a necessary thing? Right. And that is also innovation. Right. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So much there. That is that is good <laughs> stuff. Very good stuff. I'm dealing mentally with the Toni Morrison quote about mm-hmm. around the everyone else has to hyphenate. Mm-hmm. And that's fascinating. I never really thought about that in terms of what that means when everyone else is Asian American or African American or Native American or whatever. Mm-hmm. What does American mean? If those are the modifiers, then the unmodified version must then by default. Interesting. Yeah, think about it. Think about history. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. I I love history. And I love that. I love conversations about innovation in the context of history, because innovation as a term, as a thing to think about, is really quite new to the civilized world. We've been doing things that we would look back and label as innovative for thousands of years. But that term innovation is relatively new in language. Mm. And so I think having this lens of what it means to have a dominant race, a race with the power and the influence to have a culture and to impose that culture Mm. on a broader society 
what does that term innovation mean in a society like that? Mm-hmm. I think you're exactly right. I love the word dismantling because dismantle doesn't mean destroy. Mm-hmm. It just means we're taking it apart. Mm. It doesn't mean you're not going to build something back with the constituent parts. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think when people hear dismantle, sometimes they hear destroy. Mm. And dismantling is really more about a reorganization, the beginning of an opportunity to reorganize. If you choose to see dismantling as destruction, then you won't see the opportunity to rebuild and reorganize. And so I think it's really important that you use that word dismantling because it offers the opportunity to build something good, something collaborative, something open to other cultures out of something that is currently not culturally open or balanced. I appreciate you saying that because that's unpacking so much in me, even around the framing of innovation. Because it's like dismantling has to be a part of innovation work. Mm -hmm. Because where people often get innovation wrong, Mm -hmm. (laughs) especially, you know, with the nonprofit industrial complex, is a lot of times people will have good intentions. And I'm quoting big ideas for how to solve things that they're not proximate to, that their own privilege has made them think that hence they have the answers. Right. As opposed to centering those impacted and realizing that, you know, the answers are there and how do we build towards that? So where people often get innovation wrong is just trying to create without context. Mm. And so I'm really appreciating what you shared because you can't innovate without doing the deep work of evaluating and that breaking apart, which is dismantling. Mm. Right. So I feel like you just lifted up in me that you can't innovate without dismantling, which is a powerful thing. So thank you for that. Yeah, all kinds of light bulbs and things are going off in my head just from the 10 minutes we've been talking. So thank (laughs) you as well. I think the other piece around institutionalization of things, and again, that's why I believe, you know, I know what you stand for and the work you do, and I am a tireless proponent of it, but I see it as innovation. I've always seen it as innovation because if you think about operating against institutionalized forces that are inherently seeking to preserve and maintain the status quo as a form of momentum. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's what innovation is, is operating against that inertia to create something new and better. There we go. And the work you do does that in a space that is uncomfortable to talk about and difficult to abstract. Mm -hmm. So it's easy for me to talk about innovation when we talk about laundry detergent or tennis shoes or financial models or whatever, Mm -hmm. because you can abstract those things away from the human context. Mm -hmm. But when you talk about innovation in the context of who we are as a society, who our great, great grandparents were as people and as a society and the decisions and the experiences that shaped Mm -hmm. this culture and this institution, when you talk about moving in a way that influences that stayed institution to operate differently, it suddenly takes on a different emotional charge. Right. And it's important that it does, but we have to be able to move through that emotional charge intellectually to be able to talk this out, to talk through it. Yes, absolutely. And that's (laughs) why, and as you were talking, I was like, The point in innovation is to make things better, right? Yeah. To make society better. And that's why for me, that's why dismantling white supremacy just ties hand in hand in that because race literally impacts everything, right? Mm -hmm. Like the numbers show it, the data shows it. And 
if anything around our innovation is just trying to work towards better, Mm-hmm. then we should certainly then want to work towards dismantling white supremacy, which is, you know, just at the core of so much. It's all of it's first making things better. Right, right. How do you think about where to start in something that big? How do you, you know, put one foot in front of the other? Because I look at it, it's an Everest level problem. And you've you started to climb that mountain. How did you decide what the first step is to, to kind of move in that direction? Oh, that's a journey. <laughs> Well, I'm a black woman, mm-hmm. right? And so race has always been a part of my experience that I've noted. Mm-hmm. And I think life and growing just gave me more of a particular lens and then choice to deepen right. <laughs> and right. and choose to do this work. And it's been a journey in itself. I think specifically the call to be an activist mm-hmm. was a journey because Pretty early in life, I realized that I wanted to do justice work. Right. And I used to say I wanted to work towards being a professional humanitarian. (laughs) As I lived more into that, I began to unpack the importance of service, right? Mm -hmm. And the importance of proximity and being involved and giving of yourself in the way that is needed and asked of you. Versus right. like saviorism and paternalism right. and right. <laughs> where yeah. the word think the waters can get muddy. Then when it comes to is humanitarianism, the way, and then that evolved, particularly as I deepened in my understanding of white supremacy, I was like, no, nah, activist mm. is what I'm meant to be. Mm-hmm. And the way that I like to frame it is it's that parable of someone's at the bottom of a river and all these babies keep on coming down. And wanting to pull out as many of them as possible. And then at some point being like, okay, yeah, it's important to pull out all these babies, but we got to go to the top of the river and figure out who's putting the babies in there. Yeah. And so I think higher level, that's like my symbolic journey into recognizing we got to work on white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And I would say that in terms of execution, to your point, things can feel so big. Yeah especially with white supremacy impacting everything, it can feel so overwhelming, especially as a Black woman and just even feeling the toll on my body every day from it. Mm -hmm. And so what really gives me empowerment, I always say we're working towards a hope, which is the belief that we can build better tomorrows than today. Mm. And I was like, okay, so how can I practice building better tomorrows than today? And then realize that there are so many things in my everyday that I can do And furthermore, putting the framing on in my areas of privilege within the scope of justice, Mm. it's my responsibility to do as an ally. And like, that's what our organization teaches. That's what my bread and butter is, is teaching people to recognize where do you have privilege? This is where you should be an ally. And this is how, which is solely from a racial justice lens. So it's primarily engaging white audiences, but also Black, Indigenous, people of color when it comes to intersections and racial solidarity. It's my way to contribute to equipping people to have this lens in their own life in all the ways that they may be complicit in upholding structures of oppression and teaching tools to do that little chipping away, as I call it. Mm. So if white supremacy is the iceberg, how can we all have the lens to identify our participation in that iceberg and then identify something that we can do or stop doing that would symbolically chip away? Mm. That's how I'm landing at. This is how I can contribute to the work of building a better world by empowering everybody to do their own work that collectively, if we're all chipping away, that iceberg will whittle. Right. That was very like 
symbolic of a story. I didn't give you too many tangibles, but hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully there was a takeaway there. No, there was, there, there were lots of takeaways. <laughs> the thing that really strikes me as you kind of unpack your emotional and mental journey, because I think that's why it was somewhat abstract is because it, it's not a physical journey that you went on. Mm-hmm. Right. And so how do you convey to someone this inner journey and, right. and its metaphors, its analogies, it's all those things. So mm-hmm. I really appreciate you sharing that and contextualizing it. The thing that jumped out at me was that your approach is so pure. And if we stay in the field of social justice and we stay in the field of the nonprofit sort of nonprofit NGO sort of world, Mm -hmm. there's lots of lessons there. There's lessons for the business community in that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you are focused on one race, one community, Mm -hmm. right? You're focused on white supremacy. And that context, I mean, there are probably a dozen other things that are very important and have a huge impact on society and on people of color and on X, Y, Z, A, B, C. And you're brilliant and you could go work on those things. And I'm sure you worry about those things and think about those things. Mm -hmm. But when you talk about what you do, it is laser focused in a very specific area. Mm -hmm. And your language is built around it and your focus is built around it and your programming is built around it. Mm -hmm. And that is even harder to do in the space that you're in. You're in that space because you see the pain and you see the suffering and you see the the negative outcomes Mm -hmm. that society is experiencing from this and you want to help. And there are negative outcomes and problems strewn all around us, right? Mm -hmm. And so I I think it's even harder to kind of focus in this type of space. And so the fact that you can hold a focus in this one area and drive your passion deep on that specific topic, I think is why you have impact. And it's a lesson for for all of us. I think you have to trust that this is the place where your effort is going to be most needed and most impactful. Mm -hmm. And the exploratory phase is important, but you can't stay there. You know what I mean? I do. Thank you for that. Because it gets me to reflect on my organization's journey, Service Never Sleeps like in alignment with what you shared and an offering at that because when we first met Mm -hmm. it was literally the moment where the org was at a shift because the original idea for service never sleeps was a fellowship year of part-time service for working young professionals Mm. where we'd match them with with local nonprofits to do skills-based service after hours right right at 10 hours a month helping these nonprofits grow in capacity while building this next generation of committed leaders who understood everybody doesn't have to commit their careers to justice work, but you can give something, right? Sure. And when you and I first met, it was was when SNS, Service Never Sleeps, was having a shift where after the elections of 2016, I was really processing, look, as a Black woman, I'm not responsible for addressing anti-Black racism and sexism. That's primarily on white people and men. And if I'm saying that, then in all of my areas of privilege, I have the responsibility to be an ally. Mm. And so the big idea was, you know, let's create this allyship training as well Mm -hmm. as a way to engage people beyond the fellowship. And then the more that I got into this, as much as I was trying to keep race as an equalizer, 
Sure. The more I was like, no, you got to center race. And then I was in Charlottesville and I was like, forget it. Like, I don't care how people react. <laughs> We're centering race. <laughs> like you and I met actually right before Charlottesville, right? Mm -hmm. So when I was yep. in this weird spot, but ever since Service Never Sleeps, that I empowered myself to have that focus on race yeah. and to be a racial justice organization, it's made everything come together because mm -hmm. now there is a heart for our fellowship. Now our fellowship is grounded in understanding systems right. and how white supremacy shows up and our role as allies and how that informs how they do their service, but how they also show up at their workplace. And our organization, to your point about having a thing, we don't consult, we do our fellowship and we train. Mm -hmm. All I do is train right. every week. And what we try to get people to understand is that race equity has to be a priority of any work, any institution. It's got to be the heartbeat, right? Mm -hmm. It can't be the side thing, but rather by centering race equity, that's the lens through which you make all of your other decisions from your programming to your mission, to your budget, to your board, to your staff, to your right. policies. Right. And so that's my offering, right? Is holding the both end of my learning journey and how it informed that we've got to center this in everything that we do, but also that what we offer to anybody is that we believe everybody should be centering race equity. Right. Everybody who wants a better world should be centering race equity, particularly at their institutions. So I would challenge, what does that mean for the business world, for all nonprofits, for, for philanthropy? Yeah. How can you center race equity so that that's your heartbeat and impacts everything that you do as well, even if you're not an org that focuses specifically on that like us? Right, right. And I think it's so important to be able to have that thematic view, right, that cuts across everything, because with something so charged and so hard to talk about and hard to hear, if it's not thematic, if it's not immersive, if it doesn't cut across everything, mm -hmm. then attention will take the path of least resistance. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I can't think about that right now. So I'm going to go over here and think about that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it's so important that you have this sort of immersive view of the world. And it's, it's inspiring. Like I said, it's a great object lesson for innovation. And I want to pull the innovation lessons out of this conversation because it's important not to minimize, not to compare the work you do to other types of things and products and services that other people are working on, not to equivocate from an impact standpoint, but to analogize the two. Mm -hmm. Because if you can see the approach and the process and the thinking and all the things that go into how you methodically and systematically approach this problem, mm -hmm. one, you can apply it to what I and other people do every day. But two, this is a deeply human problem, mm -hmm. but the approach, we can start to de-escalate the thinking around the issue. Yeah. And that's what I really like about how structured and thoughtful you are about tackling this and how open you are about it. Mm -hmm. It allows people to get to a point where they can think about it in an intellectual sort of way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and to not be scared of it or push it away. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. I'm every day trying to unlearn white supremacy, leading this Black-led, anti-racist allyship organization as an institution, we are constantly challenging ourselves and turning the mirror to ourselves and being like, wait, are we upholding white supremacy right now? What does that mean? How do we address it? But how do we build? And so to your point, I think that there are a lot of symbolic takeaways, right? Mm -hmm. There are takeaways in the fact that 
innovation means not doing the status quo. Yes. Right. So yes. how do you compare? Like if you allow yourself to accept that society's norm is the default of white of whiteness, right? What what created what that culture is, you know, innovation by default would mean trying to work against the status quo. Innovation requires discomfort, right? Mm. It's so interesting to me. So many people do not want to get uncomfortable when it comes to talking race, which impacts everything. And yet those same people will talk about how in order to achieve something, you've got to be willing to do the work and get uncomfortable. It will be hard. <laughs> On some ends, I'm like, well, how come you're not willing to apply that same willingness for discomfort right, right. <laughs> when it comes to making change and innovation, yep. but not apply it to like human work of dismantling white supremacy? Mm. And I would say it takes action, right? Yep. Like that's why I always say innovation is envisioning and creativity plus action. Because mm -hmm. if you're not doing anything, you're not going anywhere. And that definitely aligns with racial justice work. Because if one more person, Jared, tells me that kindness is the answer, <laughs> I always say <laughs> kindness is wonderful, but that won't end racism. It's going right. to take a whole lot more. Right. And so like having to be action oriented. And then lastly, the last like alignment is that the outcome is wonderful. Mm -hmm. It's excellence, right? You innovate for better. Mm -hmm. And I always just remind people of that, that as difficult as the process of innovation, the process of dismantling white supremacy is, it's so that we can achieve better for everybody mm -hmm. and that nobody loses. So it's directly aligned there. And that's why I always tell people that's <laughs> it's directly aligned because these systems are applied to everything. So yeah. that's why I can't talk about innovation without talking about justice and dismantling. Yeah, no, it's uh, it feels self-evident when you talk about it, but it doesn't always feel that way when other people talk about it. <laughs> Look. <laughs> so I think the other thing I wanted to poke at that you just mentioned was the sort of bi-directional aspect of innovation within the social justice, within the, you know, racial equity space and everything else a person does all day, every day. Mm -hmm. Like the, the fact that there are parallels and analogs in and out of that is an important thing. Mm -hmm. So I feel like because it, this is such an emotionally charged topic and there's so much, I mean, people hear family, they hear multi-generational insults when they hear white supremacy you know what I mean mm -hmm. and that goes to a very a very human place mm -hmm. and so kindness I understand why people talk about kindness because I, I believe it's an ingredient right mm -hmm. but I agree with you it's not the answer I think because it's so charged things are extremely polar in this conversation you're either perfectly kind and infinitely accepting, mm -hmm. or you're completely radicalized and militant. Mm -hmm. And I think the, these are my just kind of general terms. Mm -hmm. I think that activism is different from what people kind of, because it, this is a polarized conversation, you use the term activism and it immediately gets pulled over to the sort of extreme. Yeah. And so I would love to hear your thoughts on just that whole thing. Sure. Yeah. I have a few things to offer. One, like I said, I'm a fan of kindness and many <laughs> times I can be kind. Right. I right. think people just need to understand that niceness as a construct, you're thinking about these issues solely as interpersonal. Mm. And when you understand that it's institutional and systemic, 
kindness is not going to dismantle all the inequities out there. Like action must be taken. So that's the first thing that I get people to think about is that when you think kindness, that means you're thinking in the limited scope of interpersonal engagement. But the reason why this is systemic is that it's beyond one-on-one engagements. That's one. Mm -hmm. Two, I'll go to the other end that activism pushes the envelope, right? Mm -hmm. There have got to be people who are pushing people to get uncomfortable in order to veer into the next thing. And when you look at history and so much transformation that's happened, the people who are now celebrated, Dr. King, (laughs) were the people who were demonized for the prophetic language that they would use and how they push for discomfort. Mm -hmm. So I often offer, how often are people confusing or conflating niceness with comfort, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And thinking that anything that makes you uncomfortable is hence mean and unkind. And that's just not true. And then lastly, what I would offer is that there are so many different tactics for how we engage in this work. Like I tell like white people, for example, I say, look, white people talking to white people about race is required in my book. One, because you're more willing to be heard because Mm. of the bias of trusting sameness. Sure. But also two, because as a black woman, I get upset and that is valid. (laughs) (laughs) And everybody can't receive that. But you as a white person can show a grace and understanding and like a joining along in somebody's process to help them land differently. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes like I just don't have the responsibility to do. Sometimes I can do it, but sometimes like that labor just can't be on me, Mm. but it can be on you because it's different. So I say that Jared to offer that There are many tactics, some of which can be circumstantial. I make choices every day about when I need to show up in the grace and the kindness to like have a conversation to help someone understand what, how, what they did was problematic and how they can be better. There's so much importance and space for that. Sure. All the way to direct action. Protesting means shutting down the streets and saying that everybody's day will be disrupted so that we must focus on this. Mm -hmm. And that absolutely has its value as well. Mm -hmm. And different things are needed for different circumstances, different moments by different people. It's taking all different types of people and different types of tactics to move stuff along. And so I just offer that opening for people, like a real challenge of what do you really mean, actually, when you're talking kindness? Mm -hmm. uh, I I offer the challenge of discomfort is required, period, which is not synonymous with meanness. And then I offer it takes a lot of tactics. And for some of which kindness just actually isn't (laughs) the the right tactic for the moment. Mm -hmm. And I think that people just need to understand that. Mm, That's good stuff. I think that's so important. and. So nuanced that it's just so important that someone as articulate as you takes the time to try to unpack that. And I love that you talked about the sort of validity of getting upset during these conversations. Even for someone who does the work all day, every day, I'm sure it's still upsetting. It's still an emotional investment. And being this close to the impact of the problem is a challenge. And there is some benefit and advantage to being a step removed from the direct impact of the problem Mm -hmm. when you start to think about being able to sustain engagement on it. For sure. So I really appreciate you unpacking that for folks. How do you think about what's next? 
innovation, you know, your definition is all about action and mm-hmm. moving forward, kind of in a nuts and bolts, rubber meets the road for innovation kind of way. How do you take what's going on and decide what's next for your organization? Hmm. Well, it's interesting because as you were talking about like the toll that this work can take on me doing this work, yeah. what was also coming up for me, which I'm glad that you sparked, is that innovation has to involve community relationship. Mm-hmm. Like the construct of white supremacy strips us all of our humanity and creates this idea of like hyper individualism where it just has to be us doing everything. It's yeah. only me. And like disruption to that is also community and relationship. Mm. Like it's innovative to do this work in that, not siloed and alone. Yeah. So as you were talking, I was like, when I think about our organization, while I'm the founder and CEO, my co-founder, my COO, we're in deep relationship. Mm-hmm. We're close friends. And he's who I call every day. Like I call him every day yeah. after a tough day to be like, let me tell you. And he sits with it and supports me. Right. And so. It's interesting. I just wanted to, to put that there, that community and relationship and partnership is actually a really important qualitative thing with innovation, with, which once again, dismantles a lot of that individual stuff that we think about when it comes mm-hmm. to leadership and work. Yep. And to that point, to answer your question about what's next, I hold many things. I hold that part of innovation is that it's dynamic, right? Like sure. <laughs> uh, sure. what we do now at one point was innovative a hundred years ago until someone came up with it. Yeah. So part of it is about that continued just chipping away and doing the most that I can with what I'm aware of needs to happen in the short term. Yeah. But to the point as well, there's envisioning, there's something that we're working towards. And while chipping away is part of that, I also honor my ancestors and my elders Mm-hmm. And how it's important for us to also unpack that while some of this is creating new, some of it is also just like listening to the wisdom sure. and the answers that others have and like centering that as our guide. And so that ties in the community piece that, right, that what informs what's next for us can't just be solely me and my ideas. Like I'm always an envisioner. I love to think about what comes next and how we do that. Mm -hmm. But that usually is building off of what's been done before and what's informing me and not just me, but the community around me. So that's a very nuanced answer where on the one end, Mm -hmm. I'm saying it's just a chip away based on how I've been informed. Sure. On the other end, it's like taking the vision for what you want to get towards and how do you think long game? Yeah. But then- Getting there means centering a lot of the wisdom that's here now and has been in our past and like honoring that. And certainly in community, not alone. Right, right. Yes, well said. It really is kind of having a foot in two worlds and being able to operate at that intersection to be able to plan with an innovative mindset. Mm -hmm. It requires a lot of discipline and a lot of humility. I think in the broader world of innovation, the ancestors and the sort of institutional knowledge in whatever field you're in, it can be very tempting to dismiss that right? and to say that's how things were. Mm -hmm. That's what we're innovating to move beyond. Mm -hmm. But there's truth and there's authenticity and there are answers Mm -hmm. in what came before us because it was useful. You know about it because it was useful to someone. It solved a problem. Mm-hmm. And so understanding what problem that solved in the context, and that's why I love history, because history 
is the documentation of iterations of innovation. Right. And so if you look at everything from the founding of this country, all the problems that it was fraught with, mm-hmm. all the things that we're still living with <laughs> and fighting against these hundreds of years later, there are so many things mm-hmm. that we aren't fighting against that are still here, that are still working. Right. You think about 250 years ago, what do we still do the same way we did 250 years ago? Mm-hmm. We govern, we govern the same way, but that's it. So what can we learn from the system of government that has lasted centuries that we can take forward? And what can we learn from it that we can use as a lesson to operate differently in the future? But there's something there. Yeah. And you know what that brings up for me is I think people often think in the either or binary. Yeah, exactly. Which- it's one of the characteristics of white supremacy culture, like an offering that a great resource is Tema Okun's characteristics of white dominant culture. It has done so much to just unpack in me individually, but also center our organization of what's the default. And so what does it mean to try a different way? Yeah. But like either or thinking is literally one of them. <laughs> and to your point, right, people hence think that innovation change good has to be either all completely new things Mm -hmm. or sticking to tradition, right? Like it's one or the other, but I love living into the both and in all and everything Mm -hmm. where how can you hold both things? How can you hold all the nuance beyond it and within? And what's given me a lot of freedom is also, even when I think about justice work and racial justice work, I hold that some things have gotten better on my ancestors' wildest dreams. Mm -hmm. Some things have gotten worse, like that racial wealth gap, which is growing. And some things have stayed the same. It's just morphed with the times. Exactly. And so how do we get to the heart of addressing what those factors are that continue morphing? So within that same framing, that allows me to also hold, there are some things from history that like we can certainly learn from. Mm -hmm. And there are things that have never happened that we can build towards. Right. And like so much of the work really is an examination of everything, an examination, evaluation of everything. And what I always say is that, and then decide what can stay and should stay, Mm -hmm. what needs to go entirely, and what just needs to be altered and changed to be better. And I think that if we can live into those, all of those things as option, it opens up for us as opposed to limit us and make us feel like there has to be that either or situation. Perfect. That's exactly right. Well said. And I think those three buckets of sort of how you look at things are a perfect foundation for evaluating an innovation work process, evaluating a government, evaluating a system, a process, mm-hmm. uh, evaluating yourself mm-hmm. and how you approach your day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. Building on that, do you have any advice for innovators? A few things. I'm a believer in just dreaming, right? You can always go big and get all the ideas out there Mm -hmm. and then whittle down. Everything's not going to work clearly. Everything's not even going to make sense, but I would rather us get everything out there and and think as largely as possible from a dreaming position Mm -hmm. and then whittle down as opposed to just being so scared and small that we're not letting the highest potential even come out of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. The second thing that I would say is like build community, both in like what you're trying to innovate, but also just in life, right? Like Mm -hmm. (laughs) we're meant to be relational beings. There's a reason why 
solitary confinement is the worst punishment that you could ever get mm. and should not be a thing, right? Like, right. So, so like you can't do this hard building work feeling alone. So what it means to have partnership partners in the work, mm. but also just community around you for that support, it matters. White supremacy culture makes us think that we have to just struggle and struggle isolated and alone. No, well, you've got to have that community. And then the last thing is just like this tie-in of try new things and nothing's necessarily set in stone. Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of unlearning to do around perfectionism, which is another characteristic of white dominant culture, right? I recognize how I've been conditioned as a black woman to feel like I have to be perfect and that there is no room for error for me Mm. because that's it. But that also as a human, I am not perfect. And like, I shouldn't be trying to be perfect either. Like we're beautifully flawed. That's the point. And so- It's been a journey for me of being able to hold, how do I do the best that I can? And that in being flawed, I'm going to make mistakes, which means everything's not necessarily going to stick. And so I've actually gotten a lot of freedom, particularly as an innovator and like, let's try it, but also have the infrastructure in place that holds us accountable to what we got wrong, but also makes room for if it don't work, like, hey, (laughs) it's not set in stone. (laughs) And so how do we also just have that room for nuance and journey that means that everything doesn't have to be set in stone. We don't have to get everything perfectly right every single time. It's just not going to happen. Nothing set in stone. So dream and fix as opposed to stay limited. So those are my main things. And, And your last one, be humble. Like humility, humility has allowed me to become my best self. The way that I have learned and built and created best has come from the mistakes that I've made and the learnings that others have offered to me for how I can be better. Far more, that is how I've achieved so much better and become so much better mm-hmm. than like believing that I had all the right answers and, and beliefs. See, humility and, and reception of feedback, hence tying in that community piece is so important. Mm. Think big, build community try new things yeah there you go and be humble and be humble (laughs) and and be humble that underlines the whole thing Mm -hmm. Whitney unsurprisingly it's been a pleasure it's been fun your energy is infectious and the thoughtful approach you take to this work and the patience and openness you have for helping people along this journey is just invaluable and you will never be thanked enough for it so I'll thank you as much as I can today and look forward to our next conversation. No, thank you so much for this space and for this being an example of the beauty and power of relationship and how we've been able to keep learning and growing from each other. So glad that we were able to do that for others to hear. There you go. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Well, you keep at it and I'll keep at whatever I've got going on over here and we'll just keep supporting each other. Onward. Onward. (laughs) All right. Take care. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this week's show. You can drop us a line on Twitter at Outlast LLC, O-U-T-L-A-S-T-L-L-C, or follow us on LinkedIn where we're Outlast Consulting. Until next time, keep innovating, whatever that means. <laughs>